Today's read, A Moment of Silence, Midnight Three by Sister Soldier, Chapter 15, Aunt Tasha, A Reflection. Her blue phone rang. We all heard it. It was impossible not to hear it. Chiasa had the ringer on maximum volume so that she would never miss her father's phone call no matter which room she was in at our house, even if she was in the shower. We were each at the front door just about to leave and all very conscious of making good time. Akimi, feeling impatient, was standing high in her Valentino rock stud black sling back pumps. The subtle tapping of the tip of her gorgeous heels was the only indication that she did not like that Chiasa was holding everyone up. My first wife had an appointment with the director of the Museum of Modern Art. He'd called her as a favor to a VIP donor to the museum. The donor wanted to meet the brilliant 16 years young Akimi to discuss the possibility of privately commissioning her artwork that the museum had featured months ago. She wanted me to escort her, of course I would, as well as carry her huge portfolio of original drawings and paintings. Chiasa had dashed to her room and caught the call before there could be a third ring. Daddy, we could all hear her say in an excited tone. I smiled and Uma laughed. Akimi watched me closely with her shapely, expressive eyes. Those eyes were like sensors that captured images that her fingers would later sketch and draw from memory. But more than that, her eyes were sensors that recorded feelings as well. This is why her artwork has soul and movement. You could look at it and feel like you saw her art breathing. Her drawings and paintings of nature seem to capture the light of the sky and a glimpse of the beauty that Allah created in trees and flowers, mountains and oceans and waterfalls. Akimi was so highly skilled that she could draw something simple, like a chair. And when you look at the drawing, you would feel as though you knew the last person who sat in that chair their size and weight, as well as what era the chair came from, and how long it had been around. She had her hair pulled back in a tight bun hidden beneath a mean black fedora. It was her style, and she knocked me out. I was content that she was covered. Her black summer linen skirt and beautiful white linen blouse made her look like a wealthy princess. She exhaled, slid out of her heels, and approached me in the living room, where I now stood listening to Chiasa's phone call. Her black eyeliner, drawn on nicely, highlighted her sensual eyes. I hugged her and held her close in my embrace. Uma smiled. She had been smiling a lot lately, and a few times even laughed aloud out of nowhere, refusing to explain herself. My wives did not know why she did, but everyone loves smiles and laughter, so they let it pass. Besides, 
there was no common spoken language between my Uma and my wives. Uma only spoke Arabic and a few functional English words and sentences. Akimi could not speak in Arabic or English, but she also knew a handful of functional English words. She spoke Japanese, Korean, Chinese, and Thai. Chiasa could speak fluently, comfortably, and confidently in English, Japanese, and French. So, my first and second wife shared only one common spoken language. I could speak fluent Arabic and, of course, English. I knew a few functional words, phrases, and sentences in Japanese and Korean only because of my love for both wives. Love makes me learn. I knew why Uma smiled, and even why she laughed, she takes me seriously and believes in marriage as a requirement and the only relationship that can be shared between a male and a female that involves sex, babies, and family. At the same time, she thought there was some comedy in watching my wives and me all teen years young, yet very global. She loved seeing me grow as a man as I attempted to balance two wives, which wasn't easy. Loving them both was easy, but balancing was a separate matter. Uma and my feelings were connected. She knew what I knew. I could not be in two separate places at one time, but I wanted to be. Uma would watch as I worked out the best and right thing to do in each situation. Don't move too far from the front door. Don't follow Chiasa because I am curious as to what her father is saying now. Don't allow Chiasa to make Akimi and me late to her business meeting. Don't cause Akimi to feel that she is not my first priority. Don't leave Chiasa behind when we were all going out together. Don't forget, Naja will be home soon and at the bus stop near our home where at least one of us is supposed to be standing even before the bus pulls up and lets her off. To be a son, husband, and brother and the only male in our household was more than a maneuver. A man could not pull it off work hard, and also maintain peace and pleasure in his household if his love was not deep and genuine. The effort alone requires that. Aafilai, Jiasa said, forgive me in Arabic to Uma, using one of the ten Arabic words that Naja had taught her for good manners. Then to Akimi she turned and said, Sumimasen, a Japanese apology, the two wives began speaking to one another in hurried, hushed tones in Japanese. I did not interfere in their talk or question Chiasa directly in the presence of Uma or Akimi. I had learned how to handle these domestic situations. My wives had just recently made an agreement. Akimi told Chiasa not to translate between the first wife and her husband. Therefore, when Akimi had anything to convey to me, 
she would do it the same way she and I had always done it, through our eyes, facial gestures, and body language. Sometimes she would do it through her art, using a random sketch to get her point across, or by her putting my Japanese to English flashcards together to form an English sentence that expressed her meaning. Sometimes she would get frustrated and speak fluent Japanese to me, which I could not translate or understand. I could only react to her tones and my intuition. The truth was, I loved my relationship with Akimi and the unusual way that we communicated with one another. It made me love her from the start, and that love only increased day by day. Making love to Akimi was like the conversations she and I never had since we don't share a common spoken language. Making love to one another was one of the languages that both of us performed well, craved, understood, and felt deeply. I opened the front door so both my wives would catch the message and walk out behind me. They did. Very late that night, I entered our house. While removing my Nikes, I noticed that the aroma of the dinner we'd had earlier, which was prepared by Akimi on her night to cook, was wafted away by the purifying scent of eucalyptus that drifted from underneath Uma's upstairs bedroom door. Quietly, I eased out of the shoulder straps of my North Face backpack, unzipped it, and lifted out two heavy bags of coins which I had collected from one of my three vending machine locations, the only ones I had not sold off wholesale. I pulled out the money belt that I never wore around my waist, using it as a padding in my knapsack instead to keep the coins from shifting around and jingling. My money belt was tightly stacked with dirty $1 bills. Wish there were hundreds, I thought to myself. In time, I reassured myself. I stashed the earnings in the utility closet just for the remainder of the night. <clears throat> Before dawn, I would bury half, and after dawn, I would bank the other half. That was my method. Washing off the grime of the streets, the filth of the money, and the soot of the subway in our first floor half bathroom, I was preparing myself for a late night prayer cleaning my face, ears, neck, forearms, and calves, I finished by cleaning my feet. It occurred to me to ask Chiasa if she wanted to join me in the prayer. She was the only one in our house whose bedroom was on the first floor. Besides, I adore her. I knocked. No answer. She must be asleep. I should have turned and headed straight to the living room to make the prayer alone as I had first intended, but other thoughts streamed in and invaded my right mind. I turned her knob, following my curiosity instead. She wasn't in her bed or even in her room, yet the spring warmth was rushing through her opened window. I had told her when we first moved in not to leave it open or unlocked, even if she was only up chilling in Uma or Akimi or Naja's bedroom. I'd offered her an air conditioner, but she preferred a fan. 
And now her window was open, her fan was spinning, and she was gone. As soon as I reached up to shut it and lock it, I saw her outside, seated on the railing of our backyard deck in the black night. At 1 a.m., she was reading a book with a small book light illuminating the words. I stepped out of her window, my feet landing on the deck. I reminded myself that it was just 11 more days until the decorative iron security window guards were installed, preventing any intruder from going in and out of her bedroom window with the ease that she and I had both done. She smiled. I smiled. She clicked off her little book light and tossed her book onto a small, low outdoor table, which was situated next to where she sat up high. At times, she liked speaking to me in the dark. I remembered. After we were first married, she was shy about revealing certain feelings. Sometimes, she would cover her face with her hand and say, Don't look at me. Sometimes she would look away when I smiled at her. In the dark, she would feel confident to speak and express her rawest emotions. I came to get you for the night prayer, I said. I was moving my mind back in a right direction. You don't need a reason, she said softly, and jumped over the railing and down into the grass. I walked over and looked. She was turning the metal knob to our garden water hose and rinsing her mouth, splashing her face, dousing her ears and nose. Come on, she said excitedly as she rolled up each pant leg and used the hose to wash her calves and feet. She handed the hose over to me as she pulled out a long scarf that she had woven into her belt loops. She fanned out the wrinkles and quickly wrapped it into a hijab, covering her hair neck and shoulders. I'm ready, she said. She's smart and swift. I never have to waste words with her. I rewashed using the hose. Felt I had to because since washing moments ago, my mind had wandered off where it should not have been. Focused at prayer time. The cold water cooled me down and set it right. We made salat. She, standing behind me, beneath the night sky and summer stars in our queen's backyard, praying out of doors and in the garden in Sudan was something my father and I and our family and friends often did. Many moments later, our prayers completed. Chiasa walked away towards the incomplete wall instead of back towards our house. I just watched her. Suddenly she stopped turned facing me and asked could you go stand over there near the deck I didn't know what she was up to but her hypnotic silver gray eyes were sparkling in the moonlight I did as she asked she gestured with her hand and said bend a little please the second I reached the squatting position like a wide receiver before the quarterback snapped the football, she ran towards me at top speed, jumped with both feet and landed on my back standing. She leaped from my back onto the rail of the deck and was then balancing herself like a tightrope walker as she walked the length of the railing 
laughing lightly and covering her mouth to muffle her joy. Coming up the four short steps to walk beside her in case she caught a splinter or fell left or right, my smile broke out naturally. Just thinking about her while asking myself the question, what will she do next? I have to do something, she said, if you don't want to allow me into your dojo. I have to use the whole yard. I'll be out here late night with my sword. She was now gesturing as though she was holding her sword in her hand and using it to charge her rival. Chiasa knows my heart. She knew I would never bring her into a dojo filled with men, even though she is an expert martial artist and trained ninjutsu fighter. She knew why. Still, she had used the art of invisibility to follow me there. One evening, in her sunglasses and modest disguise, she almost had me blinded until we both ended up paused in a crowd of walkers gathered on the corner waiting for a green light. Some old woman was crossing at the speed of an infant just learning his first few steps. She dropped one of her two bags and her grapefruits began rolling out. Everyone kept moving except the old lady and my second wife not a native New Yorker, she was the only one who eagerly grabbed up the grapefruits and helped the elder, who was still standing in the middle of the street when the green switched to red. Holding the elder's hand, she patiently walked her across, signaling drivers who still honked and swerved around them. I watched her carefully and waited on the other side. Busted! I said to her when she reached safely, after she sent the senior on her way. That's not fair, she said, startled because she was so focused on the woman, she didn't know her cover was blown. How was your day? And how was your night? Tell me everything, Chiasa now said, jumping down from the railing and seating herself in her window. She wanted details. I wanted her. Everything is smooth, I said. So fucking cool, she said under her breath, not resisting or confronting me for ignoring her question. I sat on the floor of the deck, my back leaning up against the railing, looking up at her. Your phone call? I asked. Oh, daddy, she said in almost a whisper. He wants... I was calm and cool in my demeanor, but anxiously waiting to hear what her father wants now. Two things, she said. Daddy wants me to, instead of doing the pilot's license program like I planned, which takes much less than a year, he wants me to get a Bachelor of Science degree in aeronautical science, which takes four years. He's convinced that I can earn it in three years since I completed four years of high school in three years. Daddy says the degree will give me much better business options. She paused and looked at me. And you? I asked her. I just want to fly, she said, extending her arms like the wings of a small jet soaring through the sky. Since the day I met her, 16-year-young Chiasa had always made it clear that she planned to become a pilot. 
when I arrived in Japan, it was just weeks before she was set to begin her flight school training. We fell in love, married, and moved. Now, she had spent all day today in the New York Public Library, collecting information on flight schools here, so she could compare programs and schools, then select the best one and register and pursue the license here. And the second thing I asked her, I mentioned it before, she said softly. We've all been so busy, but Daddy insists that I go to Harlem this weekend for dinner with Aunt Tasha. We sat quietly for some time, her in the window seated facing outwards towards the backyard, me still leaning on the railing, facing her. I pulled off my t-shirt. I didn't have to call her over to me. I wanted to touch her. She wanted to be touched. She stepped down from her window seat and sat between my legs, her back leaning against my chest. She removed her hijab, her hair brushing against my skin. I touched her up gently, stroking her hair, touching her face and neck, and easing my hand lightly over her breasts while her blouse was still on. She caught fever and turned and began kissing my bare chest with her thick, pretty lips. I touched her chin lightly and her lips parted, kissing her gently with my lips only at first. I could feel her body warming and her heart beginning to race. I didn't know what exactly her father was pushing his daughter to do or to be. For him, I do know that Chiasa is my wife and I'm about to go in her. If there is not a baby already in her womb, I'm about to give her one. A malt-colored jaguar with a deep chocolate brown leather interior the customized license plate said dr tasha the vehicle matched the private brownstone she lived in you didn't tell me your aunt is a doctor i said to chiasa she's a psychiatrist chiasa answered casually my eyes surveyed the impressive four-story fortress it was the only home on the Harlem block that featured an American flag flying high on the rooftop. It was clean, untattered, properly mounted, and tilted on an iron flagpole. Peeping a front and two side entrances, one on the east, the other on the west side of the building, I was figuring there was probably one in the rear as well. In my tradition, a man should approach the front door of the neighbor's house and greet the men of the house first. These were relatives I'd gained through marriage, so I knew there would be serious differences in our culture. However, I planned to give them the gifts that my Uma and wives prepared and that I carried in a shopping bag, and after greetings and gifts, I'd be laid back and easy. She's already my wife. So this is not about gaining their approval. Yet, since Chiasa cares so much about Aunt Tasha, 
who she had been mentioning since the second day we met, I wanted our first meeting to go well and for my wife to be content and at peace about it. She'll probably be down in her office, Chiasa said. That's the side door on the left. We walked around the building. Chiasa's fingers grazed mine and she folded them into my hand. I held her warmly. Our feelings were magnetic. Chiasa rang the bell with her left hand and leaned back into my body as we waited. Maybe she knew or maybe she didn't know how her touches, even the lightest or most innocent ones, heated me up so crazy. She must not. Why would she want to get my mood moving in that direction as we stood underneath an arched and secluded deep brown brick entryway alone? I kissed her neck on impulse. She looked up at me, smiling her beautiful smile. I kissed her lips. The door opened. We straightened up, but neither of us dropped hands. Don't allow me to interrupt, Aunt Tasha said, smiling widely. I've been watching anyway, and I see it very clearly. It's really quite powerful. Hi, Aunt Tasha, Chiasa said with an excited outburst. She jumped up and hugged her aunt with her left arm and remained holding hands with me with her right. Girl, let go of him for one second and embrace me. Chiasa, instead of letting go instantly, looked over and up to me. We stared at one another for some seconds. She pulled my hand, still in hers, and placed both our hands in Aunt Tasha's hand. My husband, Chiasa said. Aunt Tasha laughed heartily. It was a laughter laced with love. Husband, come in. She said, releasing our hands. I stepped forward and walked in first. Giasa following behind me. I set the gifts down. Her office was warm. Walls painted in warm colors. A cranberry red in the first room we entered. And I could see a cantaloupe colored room to the left. And a sea blue green room to the right. The feeling was intimate somehow and calming. Her degrees were mounted on the wall, all four of them. Each was set in an expensive frame, and on each frame there was a small spotlight that made the glass glisten and the black calligraphy of the degree stand out. Tasha Samantha Brown had an undergraduate degree from Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University and a Juris Doctor degree from Yale University. Tasha Samantha Moody, a degree in medicine from Yeshiva University, and one in forensic psychiatry from University of California at Los Angeles. I did a double take. Rereading the wording of each degree again, it seemed unheard of. She was a doctor and a lawyer. A super fox, I thought to myself. A fox and an owl. She married after becoming an attorney, either during medical school or right before her forensics degree. I noted her name change. 
American women drop the last name of either their mother or father and replace it with the last name of their husband. So now I knew her husband's last name is Moody. A brighter light suddenly switched on and I turned towards it. The aunt was standing there looking at me. Are you going to meet me formally? Aunt Tasha asked me. Excuse me, I was meeting you by your degrees. I smiled. A million dollar smile, she said. Then she turned towards Chiasa. That's how you got stuck. You were trapped right there in his smile, weren't you? Aunt Tasha, Chiasa shouted joyfully. I'm serious, Aunt Tasha said. When your father told me that our Chiasa, the beautiful, young, trilingual, brilliant, talented, huge-hearted, 16-year-old, Aunt Tasha's voice grew louder, emphasizing 16-year-old, got married. Oh my God, I thought he must be jesting, but now I see it. Step over here, please, young man. Stand beneath the light. This light, she ordered me. I took two side steps, feeling like an interrogated character in a Russian spy novel I had recently read. Hmm. You're handsome enough to get away with murder, she said. Her words sent a wave of chill through me. I didn't know why. Aunt Tasha, Chiasa said. She seemed to be stuck, just calling out her favorite aunt's name over and over again. Very disarming, her aunt continued with her study of me. Charming and ominously cool, she said, and her talk was without laughter, as though she was somehow analyzing me. It felt strange. She was speaking about my looks, but it felt like she was attempting to peer into my soul. I wasn't familiar with the word ominous. As soon as she took her attention off from me, I would look it up in the micro-dictionary I sometimes carried in my pocket. I remained calm, wasn't responding or reacting to her compliments. I was used to being admired by all types of women, although I already had a sense that she was unlike any woman I had ever met before. What do you know about this man, Chiasa? Other than the fact that he's poltritudinous, she said, adding another word I'd never heard before in any conversation with any human being. I know he overtakes me, Chiasa said, and whatever I am, he is more, she added. Aunt Tasha's jaw dropped and her right arm went up. She rested her hand on a waistline. Hmm, overtakes you she repeated. And what else? He makes me feel so good in every way, and I love him. And then Shiasa began speaking in her Japanese tongue, gesturing with her pretty fingers and eyes. What have we always told you about speaking Japanese in our house, when you know so well that no one who lives here communicates in that language? I'm sorry, Aunt Tasha, but I couldn't describe in English words that feeling I wanted you to feel and understand so well. I thought maybe if you listened to the Japanese expressions, even if you didn't understand them, literally, you could feel their meaning. That's what we do at home, Chiasa explained. At home? 
her aunt repeated. Yes, where my husband and our family live. And where is that? Because three months ago, you lived in Tokyo. Queens, New York, Chiasa shared. Your light is getting hot, I interjected. Pardon me? Aunt Tasha asked. The lamp you have me standing under, the heat is intensifying, I said. She reached up and switched it off. And what do you know about our Chiasa, she asked me. I smiled. Don't smile at Aunt Tasha, Chiasa said playfully. She's going to think that your smile is the only reason I wanted to marry you. Please take a seat, Aunt Tasha told me. I sat down in a majestic maroon chair made of thick leather and upholstered expertly. A few thousand was dropped on that chair, easy. Maybe even ten, I thought to myself, as I tried to become comfortable being examined by a forensic psychiatrist in her office, on her turf, playing by her terms. Chiasa, you will know best what your husband likes. Please, go upstairs and get him something cool to drink. Yes, auntie, Chiasa complied, but first she stooped to remove my Gucci loafers from my feet. They don't, but we do, she whispered to me. I noted that she had already removed her shoes. She set mine at the side entrance. Then she dashed up the stairs and into the house. Now I was left alone with her aunt. She stepped to her doctor's desk, opened a drawer, and handed me some pages. I didn't look at what it was, just looked at her, a silent inquiry. It's like a Rubik's Cube, she said to me. See what you can do with it. She handed me a pen. I looked it over. Didn't feel pressed. Filled it out. Just a bunch of diagrams, math problems, and trick questions. But it didn't ask me for any of my personal information, so I was cool with it. Soon as I was done, I stood up and laid it on her desk where she was seated looking at a magazine. Do you know how Chiasa likes her beef prepared? Her aunt asked me strangely, looking up and closing her magazine. Chiasa does not eat beef, I answered, and sat back down in her hot seat. Do you know Chiasa's favorite fruit? An onion, which she eats like it's an apple, I said, truthfully. Her aunt clapped. Do you know Chiasa's best friend? She kept quizzing me. A horse called Koinichi, I answered. Do you know Chiasa's best skill? The sword, I said easily. Do you know what Chiasa hates the most? She asked me. I leaned forward. Anyone who tries to stick their hand in someone else's love story and change the direction of her fate. I was quoting my wife. Aunt Tasha was taken aback by that point. I could see how her eyes widened a bit, and she leaned forward. Even you didn't know that one, did you? I asked her calmly. She cleared her throat and didn't answer my question, yet she continued questioning me. What does Chiasa fear the most? She asked, growing more serious boredom I said who 
does Chiasa love the most? She asked. Her father, I said. What does Chiasa like the most? It wouldn't be right for me to answer you truthfully about that, I said solemnly. And just the thought about the answer caused movement in me. Aunt Tasha gave me a half smile and said, Is that so? Her eyebrow lifted the same way my second wife's eyebrow lifts when she is thinking too hard about a complicated matter or surprised about something. One thing I see that is different from what I suspected is, Aunt Tasha began, is that you are more deeply in love with our Chiasa than any one of us would have imagined. It's not anything that you said to me right here and now. It's not even your responses to my inquiries. I could see it in your eyes, even through my upstairs window and immediately thereafter, through my side door people. We thought you had stolen only her heart and that perhaps she had lost her mind and her way because of it. But I see that the two of you are thoroughly and deeply invested into each other. That's one huge plus on your side, and believe me, our family does not hand out stars easily. I didn't know what she meant by that. Is your husband home? I asked her. I'd feel more comfortable if I could greet him first. Clementine is on his way. He'll be here shortly, and you're right. Perhaps I should save all of my questions and share each of my observations when our whole family is here for dinner. That would be better for you than repeating yourself to each of us separately, she said. Giasa walked down the stairs like a quiet feline with a glass of pineapple juice in her hand. She looked at me, looked at her aunt, and then back at me. How would you like to be addressed? What should we call you? Antasha asked me, breaking the awkward silence and almost pretending that she had not already asked me a series of personal questions. Midnight, Chiasa said in an exasperated voice. Let's start with that. He's comfortable with that name, Chiasa said, before I said my true name. My wife set the pineapple juice down on a coaster on the marble tabletop beside me. She unfolded a warmed cloth and wiped my hands clean with it, then handed me the glass. Enjoy, she said softly. I would do whatever Chiasa suggested. She never called me Midnight. When she first met me, she discovered my true name. She had seen it on my passport as we both processed through customs, coming off the same flight yet She chose to call me by a Japanese name that she felt described me the way that she saw me. That name is Ryoshi, and in Japanese, the kanji for that name means the hunter. She must have had a reason to introduce me to her Japanese grandfather back then as Ryoshi, the hunter, and for introducing me now as Midnight. She and I are both ninjas, so I would go along with her lead with her family. I know she is smart and swift. Midnight it is, Aunt Tasha said, 
an unusual name for a prodigious young man. That marked the third word I would need to look up. Ominous, pultritudinous, and now prodigious. I made a mental note of all three. Show him around the house, Chiasa, so that he can make himself at home until your cousins and uncle arrive for dinner on time, I hope. Do you want me to? Chiasa asked me. I'm going to chill right here until your uncle arrives. That's the best thing for me to do, I said. Aunt Tasha smiled and stood up and excused herself. Chiasa walked over to me and sat down in my lap, leaning her body against me, her face close to mine. She said softly, Aunt Tasha is good. I know she asks a lot of questions, but she means well. She kissed my face. You want to get loved up in your aunt's office? I was looking at her. You want the truth? She asked me, smiling. We both laughed. Her aunt's library was across from her office on the same floor where she also had two consultation rooms for her psychiatry private private practice. Your aunt brings mentally ill patients into the same house where her family lives? I asked Chiasa. She used to, not anymore, but people with mental illnesses are not all serial killers, Chiasa defended. All you need is one serial killer in the house. If you let one in, it won't matter that all the rest of her patients are very nice, crazy people. Oh, stop, she hit me. If one of her patients was a serial killer, Aunt Tasha would know it. She's really a smart lady. You saw all of her degrees. A lawyer and a doctor, I said, and a forensic psychiatrist. Something big must have motivated her. Do you think she read all of the books in this library? We were standing in the center of the room, and each wall was covered from floor to ceiling with books neatly organized, not paperback novels, mostly hard-covered, thousand-page textbooks, and all was non-fiction. Yes, most of them, but some of them she probably just skimmed through and highlighted the important parts. Like when you're studying for an exam, she also explained. At that moment, I thought about how all of my exams had been in real life challenges, in becoming strong, in dealing with these streets I walk on and travel through each day and night, in protecting Uma and Naja, in building and expanding our family business, and in maintaining my women and training my body. I read books had always been a big reader since I was real young. However, I had never read books like the ones on her shelf. I had never even seen titles like the long scientific titles I was scanning now. Since leaving the Sudan, I had not been a formal student in a formal school. I had not obtained any certificates of completion or graduation in America. I heard a truck pull up in the driveway. What are you thinking about? Chiasa asked. Just checking it out, I said. Chee! A male voice yelled out from upstairs. We all here, 
he called out, sounding anxious. I could hear several sets of keys jingling. Clementine Xavier Moody stood six foot one in height and had his four sons lined up in a row to meet me in what appeared to be their large living room. His wife, Aunt Tasha, wasn't in the lineup. She was leaning on the wall next to the fireplace behind the men like an owl on its branch, observing, learning, and controlling all at once. I walked up the stairs from her office first. Chiasa was close behind me. I didn't like that I was in my socks and her uncle and his sons were all standing in their shoes indoors. I walked past the sons directly to her uncle and introduced myself. Good evening, Mr. Moody. I'm Midnight. I shook his hand. My husband, Chiasa burst out. The men all laughed tight laughs. Welcome, son, Mr. Moody said to me. He's Dr. Moody, Chiasa said, or Uncle Clem, she corrected herself. And these are my cousins, Junior, Marcus, Martin, and Xavier. I gave each of them a pound. They were Harlem dudes. The oldest one, Junior, was sizing me up. I took him to be about 24, 25. The youngest seemed about 17. Each of them was in good shape. The cat Marcus looked like he might be a boxer. I could see it in his physique and posture. I was in my Brooklyn stance, my martial arts frame of mind, just scheming out if I had to fight each one of them for any reason. Brooklyn, right? Marcus asked me. You know. I said quietly, what's this kind of talk? Aunt Tasha had intercepted the male mood. I had some good help with dinner, so let's all wash our hands and sit at the table like civilized folk. She issued her subtle order. The dinner spread was a feast, peanut soup, salad, choices of steak or chicken or jumbo shrimp. There were plenty of sides, green beans, okra, macaroni and cheese, mashed potatoes and stewed tomatoes. Biscuits were piled high, and gravy was available in a sterling silver server at each end of the table. Dr. Moody sat at the head of the table, and his wife at the opposite end. There were three seats on each side between them. I sat on one side next to Dr. Moody. His eldest son, Junior, sat across from me. Chiasa sat beside me, and the other brothers fell in wherever they fit. Bless the table, please, honey, Aunt Tasha said. Dr. Moody and his wife bowed their heads. Dr. Moody began the prayer. His sons watched me, and I watched them. Chiasa nudged me. We both said Bismillah over our food together at the same time. What does that mean, Chi? Marcus asked my wife. In the name of Allah, I answered him. 
So Chi, are you really a Muslim now? Yes, Chiasa said confidently. Where did you meet our Chiasa? Aunt Tasha asked me. In the sky, was all I said. Chiasa smiled. On a flight to Japan, Chiasa explained. Were you part of the martial arts tournament she was in? Xavier asked. Nah, I said, I wasn't. What was your business in Japan? Her uncle questioned me with a seriousness that went deeper than the seriousness that was already in the air. Chiasa's knee nudged me. She didn't want us to start off by telling her family about my first wife, which was the only reason that I had traveled to Japan. She had requested that we get over the first few steps, which included meeting them, letting them get accustomed to the fact that we were married teens and that she, who spent all of her time in America with her African-American Christian family, was now a Muslim. That would be enough for the first visit, she had said. I told Chiasa, I won't lie about Akimi. She is my first wife, but I can agree to not volunteer any information about her on our first visit. Afterwards, they're just going to have to accept her or we'll have to separate from them. Chiasa said, I know, but... It would be better for us all to be together as family and friends than to be separate. And on our next visit, I will definitely invite Akimi and hope that she will come along. I agreed. I have a vending business that started in Japan, I said to Dr. Moody, avoiding a lie by stating a truth. Is that right? Why Japan, he asked. Their vending machines are built superior, and they distribute a greater variety of products through vending than here in America. So, did your ticket happen to lead you to the seat right next to our Chiasa on the flight? Chia, Aunt Tasha asked. No, she was seated up front in a different section with all of the females from her martial arts team, I said. I could feel that these people wanted and were fully prepared to press and squeeze me for the details. So, don't tease us. Tell us how you first met. What did you say? What did she say? I didn't say anything to her. She didn't say anything to me. But when I looked at her, I thought I saw Janat in her eyes. Janat, Xavier repeated. Heaven, Chiasa translated softly. It means heaven in Arabic. Now they each stared at me. Aunt Tasha leaned back and explained, Oh my sweet Jesus. Marcus looked at me like he wanted to go a few bare-knuckled, bare-fisted rounds with me. I was game. Dr. Moody, what's your business? I asked him. Everyone turned even more quiet. I really wanted to know. I also was bent on changing the direction of the questioning and moving myself out of the focus. I'm a consultant, he said. Now, he was being vague and secretive. Same as me. What does a consultant do? I pressed him. I really didn't know. Well, son, if you get a good education, 
and study hard and master one or two areas of knowledge, you can become an expert. Once you reach a high level of expertise, instead of a standard or even an administrative job, major corporations, public and private business entities will come to you to license your expertise for a period of time. Depending on how good you are, you can set your fees at an astronomically high rate and charge these companies for your time instead of being a salaried worker who's part of a daily 9 to 5 rat race. He dipped his biscuit in his gravy and added, and then you can afford all of this, waving one hand in the air as though to say that's why he can afford four sons, a wife, plenty of gravy, and a beautiful home. I also caught his unspoken questions to me. I believed he was inferring, can you afford our chiasa? What kind of an education do you have? Are you an expert in anything? Can you house our chiasa? Can you afford to finance children when you are so young and not yet fully established? I caught it all. Are you a student? Aunt Tasha asked me. I'm a businessman, vending textiles, import and export, I said confidently. That's a good way to put it, Marcus laughed, and his brothers snickered. Legal business exclusively, I said. It shut him down for a second. How about you? I reversed it. I'm at West Point Military Academy. September starts my senior year. My brother, Junior, graduated from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute with his master's. He's a chemical engineer with the Dow Chemical Corporation. Martin here, just graduated from Princeton. He's about to head off to Georgetown Law School come September. And my little bro, Xavier, is planning to follow in cheese footsteps and become a pilot. He looked at me like he thought he had just dropped a bomb on my head. Chiasa, Marcus said in a tone with too much authority for a guy who was not her father or her husband. You're still planning to fly, aren't you? It was a question, but he actually said it like a demand, so I interjected. Sounds good. By the time all of you fellas are through getting an education, I'll have more than enough capital. All four of you can come work for me, I said. Dr. Moody laughed a deep and hearty laugh, and his wife began laughing also. Chiasa was smiling. I wasn't, and neither was Marcus or his brothers. But you do know that education is important, don't you? Aunt Tasha asked me as her laughter evaporated. Part of our social adjustment is hinged on education. We've all read the classics like the entire Shakespeare collection, Langston Hughes, Edgar Allan Poe's work, James Baldwin, and of course, there are two must-read novels that come to mind. F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby and Catcher in the Rye, written by J.D. Salinger, Every American has to read those two in high school. This boy doesn't need Shakespeare, 
He just told us <clears throat> he saw Janat in our Chiasa's eyes. He's a poet. Besides, Shakespeare's Juliet was only 13, and Romeo not much older than her when they married after only knowing one another for one day. If he reads Shakespeare, it might reinforce this boy's ideas, Dr. Moody said, half-joking, half-serious. Yes, but Romeo and Juliet committed suicide, Chiasa said. Our love is not like theirs. We bypassed our obstacles. We are young and married already, and our love is awesome. She silenced them. I believe it is, Antasha said, but that's not what we're discussing. What are we discussing? I asked, and Aunt Tasha paused. I think we are all shocked. It's nothing against you at all. We held Chiasa in our arms when she was a newborn. She lived in Japan, but whenever she traveled to America, I raised her like she was my daughter, and so did her uncle. My sons loved Chiasa and grew up beside her over the years when she visited the States. She inhaled, then exhaled as though she had run a marathon. But she was just talking while seated. It obviously meant a lot to her. We saw her just a couple of months ago, and she was the same girl she has always been. Really beautiful super intelligent, swift and joyful, and single. She still is, I said, really beautiful, super intelligent, swift and joyful. The only difference is now she is my wife by choice, not by force. But you are disregarding the elephant in the room, Antasha said. This past Christmas, Chiasa and our entire family were guests at the Christmas Eve service in the Abyssinian Baptist Church right here in Harlem. That was seven months ago. Now we are told that she is Muslim. All of these changes happened so dramatically, so swiftly, we are shocked. And I think we need to hear something moving and true to help each of us get comfortable with this idea, she exhaled. Your brother is Chiasa's father. True? I asked Dr. Tasha. Absolutely, she said. He handed his daughter to me. Fucking impossible, Marcus growled. I sincerely hope that's moving and true enough for you. A father has that right, doesn't he? Even her Japanese grandfather agreed, I said, shifting the weight onto the men in my wife's family, where in my tradition, it belonged. A daughter goes from the hand of her father to the hand of her husband. That's moving enough for me, Dr. Moody said solemnly. He made it out of Japan with the general's daughter. That couldn't have been easy. He chuckled a sinister sound. Matter of fact, I'm sure he's making it sound a lot easier than it was, he said, continuing his bass tone sarcasm and laughter. Besides, our Chiasa is wearing a clear, two-carat, pear-shaped diamond wedding ring and seven diamond bracelets. 
She wasn't wearing those three months ago. That takes more than emotion. That takes commitment and capital. I think this young man is moving and serious, he said, downshifting me from son to this boy, then promoting me to young man. I enjoyed the food. I complimented Aunt Tasha. It's catered by Copeland's right here in Harlem, she said with a hint of frustration. Aunt Tasha, she asked us softly. Remember how you guys used to tease me about how Japanese I was? And how I was so shy and subdued and wouldn't do the same things as you all did? Marcus spent a whole summer trying to teach me how to yell when I'm angry and what to say and how to curse people out when they deserved it. Everyone laughed. They must have been remembering. Well, also, there were the times all of us would go to church and you would ask me if I felt the spirit of Jesus and I would always say no and then apologize to you. Remember the lady who jumped up in the middle of the sermon and burst out in tears and began running back and forth in the aisles of the church and speaking some weird language and you all told me she was speaking in tongues? Then she broke out of her trance and collapsed. Does everybody remember? Chiasa asked and a few of them mumbled yes. Xavier laughed. Well, I think back then there was something missing inside of me. I don't know if it was missing because my mom and my grandparents and everyone on my mom's side is Japanese and they don't really have a religion or for some other reason, but I knew it was missing. I desperately wanted to find that feeling. When Midnight and I first met, he was fasting from food and water. He told me that he was a Muslim. I could see that he was really handsome and beautiful and I liked that and all of that was obvious but the idea that he was not having food and water for 30 days each day until sunset and before sunrise fascinated me. It wasn't a diet or a plan to grab first place in a competitive tournament or anything like that. It was a complete humbling. It was a way for him to express his thanks to the one who made his soul, not in simple words like thank you or arigato gozaimasu, which we can all say even when we are not sincere, but through action and restraint and discipline and sacrifice. I love that. I thought that was incredible. No one would do that in the blinding shine and intense heat of the Japanese sun that rises up so early. And I know it's scary to you guys, but I also know that it shouldn't be. Allah is the maker of all of our souls, even the maker of the souls of each of our prophets, including Jesus. The prophets were all human beings after all, right? She glanced around the table. In her eyes was both her sincerity and her apprehension. She loved her family and didn't want to lose them. She really wanted them to understand. He didn't preach to me 
or ask me to do anything that he was doing. It was the beauty of the example he was setting for me by simply doing what he believed. That struck me, she also said warmly. Now you know I love books. So I did some research and discovered the Holy Quran. I began reading it and I fell in love with the rhythm of the words, the meaning of the words, and what felt like the force behind the words. I'll admit, I began reading not at the beginning. I began with a chapter named The Women. I thought it was great that it said Allah created man and woman from one soul. That alone blew me away. And when I saw him pray, he went from standing upright to bowing slightly to going down on his knees and ultimately to pressing his forehead to the ground in what we call a full sajda. Seeing that caused a shift inside of me and I could really, honestly, finally feel my soul move. The strongest feeling I experienced was that this felt like the truth and more importantly that it felt like what I should be doing also not for him but for my soul she looked around the table at her relatives to see if they could feel her words and how they would react I knew it was very important to her that she say the truth without hurting any of her cherished relationships everyone's reaction was the very same pure silence Natasha it was you who used to encourage me to read the Bible stories remember the story of Solomon and Sheba each of them had their own kingdoms territories and riches and armies and so on they didn't even know one another now I find that I am similar to Sheba she came from a great land was loved and had everything she wanted but she came from a people who worshiped the sun like Sheba I come from a great land Japan a great language a great culture of arts and literature and lifestyle except Japanese people do not worship God in Japan we can wake up each day for thousands of days and years and bow before family friends statues and co-workers and even complete strangers but never ever bend our knees to say a prayer to the one who gave us life when Solomon heard news of the powerful Queen Sheba who had everything and who was a ruler in her own right but that Sheba and her people did not worship Allah he was saddened by it how could any king or queen or nation or people not worship the one who created their souls gave them life and also created the sun and the moon and the stars and the skies and the heavens and the mountains and the oceans and the universe Solomon sent Sheba a letter by a courier bird the bird dropped the letter at the feet of Sheba when she read the letter that Solomon wrote urging her and her people to worship only Allah she didn't know how to react she had her pride and so did her advisors the men in the council that surrounded her whose opinions she respected wanted her to go to war against Solomon 
for suggesting that such a great queen and her people of great wealth and prosperity should bow down. Sheba overruled these men. She said it was better to go take a look at and listen to Solomon and to then consider the truth and the weight of his words. She went. She saw. She bowed down not to Solomon, but to Allah. My husband is my Solomon, so to speak. He delivered to me the message to bow down to Allah just by being himself and a girl who thought she had everything before really does have everything now and I have it in the right order thankfully Allah is one my faith my man my family and the community of everyone and anyone who is striving to live true but you're not turned against us now that you believe that way are you? Xavier asked her of course not, Chiasa smiled. We will always be family. And goodness gracious, I humbled myself before God and I got married. But I can still ride my horse and wield my sword and fly my planes. She was getting excited. And push your Kawasaki, Marcus said. And come to the family celebration on July 4th like every year, Martin said. And play the piano. Aunt Tasha added. After dinner, I could sense by the way things were moving that they didn't want to let go of my wife. Her aunt was seated beside her on the piano bench in their piano room as Chiasa played and her family shouted out different songs they wanted to hear from Beethoven to Joplin. Aunt Tasha's sister-in-law arrived with her grown daughter. Now there were four women and six men in the house, which made it less tense. Or maybe it just caused a delay in the confrontation of men. Dr. Moody, I'd like to make a phone call if you don't mind, I said. You can use my office. It'll be quiet in there, he said. I followed him out of the piano room and down a corridor. He unlocked his office with a key, I noted. He opened the door and pointed to the phone. It's not long distance, is it, son? No, sir. If it was, I'd pay you up front for it. I smiled. Don't touch my papers, he said. No problem. Thank you. I pulled out a phone card. I didn't want even the local call to appear on their bill. Uma, I began speaking in Arabic. I was just checking on her and Naja. Afterwards, I asked to speak to my first wife. Akimi, I said. Hi, she said softly. You good? I asked her. Hi, she said softly. What are you doing? Music, she said softly. Then she exhaled. I wait. You come, she said. I smiled. You wait. I'll definitely come home to you. I promised her, still smiling. When I looked up, Marcus was standing there in the office doorway. Akimi, Aisheteru, I said, and hung up. Look like you want something, I said to Marcus because of his grimace. We gonna fight, he said, but not in this house. Just you or all four, I asked him. Me first, he said. You first. You must already know you gonna lose, I told him and smiled. 
Think whatever you want to think. I'll let my hands do the talking, he said. Yeah, money, whatever, whatever, whenever. You call it, I told him. His father stepped up behind him. You done, son? He asked me. Yes, sir, I responded. He put his hand on Marcus's shoulder and asked him, Did you tell the young man we're headed to the club? I was just about to, Marcus said. The men are all headed to the health club for a workout. Swimming, basketball, racquetball, weightlifting, steam room, sauna, whatever your thing is, you're invited, Dr. Moody said, taking over what he had obviously sent Marcus to say and do. Marcus had taken it on himself to eavesdrop instead. In Harlem, I asked. I had never seen no facility like that up here. And I had been through Harlem more than a few times and even checked a barber out this way from time to time. Dr. Moody laughed. Harlem's got everything a man who can afford it needs. It's a private club. You can come in on our membership VIP pass, he offered. I definitely want to. But the women got me out of my Nikes and into my loafers for the night. Plus, I'm wearing a suit. I'm just not prepared. Maybe next time, I said, regretting not having my usual ready-for-all-sports-ready-for-war wear. Marcus looked glad that I couldn't come on one hand and mad that he couldn't try and get at me on the other. They both turned and walked out, and I followed, shutting the door behind me. He better know I wasn't stalling on our battle, I thought. I'd fight him. I already knew I wouldn't hurt him bad and that he wouldn't hurt me either. He's a son who doesn't want to disappoint his mother or his girl cousin. I am the same, yet we are men, and sometimes we gotta tough each other up and knock each other out for no right reason, just to prove who's dominant. When the three of us men walked up into the den where the others were all gathered now, Chiasa stopped talking with the women and stared at me like she knew something. Aunt Tasha was staring at her husband, then at her son, then at me. What? All three of us men said at the same time. The house is quiet now. Normally, I would have gone to the club as well. It's a really relaxing end to an arduous work week, Aunt Tasha said. Is the club for men and women? I asked. Oh, yes. They have something for everybody. I prefer a rough game of racquetball, a steam shower, and the massages. Chiasa, next time you and I will get massaged, but of course, for children, 16 through 18, because you're not legally adults, I would have to sign a waiver and pay the membership visitor's fee on your behalf. Under 16, you can't even get in. I caught that she thinks that young people age 16 through 18 are children. I hope that you won't mind if I use this opportunity to steal my niece away from you for a while. I'd like to share a few words with her. Girl talk, she said. What will he do? Chiasa interjected swiftly. I haven't even given him the tour of the house yet. For now, show him to the room of games. He'll probably like that. My sons love that room in particular. Then you and I can talk downstairs in my office, Aunt Tasha said to my wife. Your office, Aunt Tasha, 
I'm not a patient, Shiasa protested sweetly. Don't worry about me. I'm good, I told my wife to calm her. Do you play pool? You must like music, Aunt Tasha asked me. Actually, I'd like to take a closer look at some of the books you have in your library, I said to her aunt. Great, then I can show you the room of books. It's our family library. That will keep you occupied for quite some time. Then, Chiasa and I can meet upstairs in my bedroom as we usually would, she said, making it clear that she didn't want me to be close to wherever her private meeting with my wife was taking place. It's there, she said, pointing me towards the family library as she led Chiasa up the stairs. But then something began beeping. She lifted her blouse slightly, revealing the Metromedia pager on the waistband of her pants. Awful timing, she said, sucking her teeth. Don't leave, she told Chiasa. I'll call in and come right back. Chiasa stood midway up the stairs, looking me over. Her eyes lit up at our being left alone. In less than two and a half seconds, she was standing right beside me. Unwrap me, she requested, her eyes sparkling. There's no one here in the house except you and me and Aunt Tasha, she whispered. And when Aunt Tasha's pager goes off, either she comes right back in three or so minutes, or thirty minutes, or three hours. I just looked at her, my mind already shifting, and my heated heart heating higher. You don't want to, she asked me. I don't want to what? I was watching her pretty lips move as she spoke, and her white teeth, and I was warming her up by making her wait naive at times. The look in her eyes changed as though she really believed that somehow I didn't want to. She raised her hands to remove her hijab. The jingle of her bangles beneath the sleeves of her dress aroused me. I caught her arm, stopping her from removing her hijab. Now it's three minutes, I said to her as I moved in closer and began to unwrap her. I felt her breathing. That aroused me more. Hijab removed, her two long braids holding her thick, natural hair in place. I began to unwrap those, too. That feels good, she said once her braids were free. She bent over and shook her loosened hair like a member of a crazy rock band. Wait till Aunt Tasha sees this, she said, smiling. She'll be insisting on cornrowing my hair. That would take forever. I didn't say nothing back. She looked like a she-lion with a majestic mane. Cornrowed, she'd look like an exotic lynx. Either way, I could feel that with her uncle and cousins gone and her hijab removed, she felt even more comfortable and free. Purposely, I watched her to see how she orchestrated her next move. She was staring at me, her eyes dancing. Come on, I'll show you around. She walked close to me, gently taking her hijab from my hand and placing it on the table. She linked her fingers with mine. Such a simple thing, but I could feel the electricity racing through my blood. This is the room of games, she said as we entered. The family library is across the hall, but now that I'm here with you, you can play with me. She smiled. Finish unwrapping me, she pleaded. I squatted down below the hem of her long skirt and raised it up to her hips. 
she gasped, but then covered up her sound. When my hands reached her pretty thighs, I rolled down her thigh highs, slowly removing them both so her legs would be free. She sat down on the floor so I could pull them all the way off. The carpet in here feels nice, she said, her pretty, unpolished toes wiggling in the fibers. I left her sitting there on the floor on purpose. I walked around checking out the official size pool table. It hogged up most of the space in the room. Still, there was enough space around the whole perimeter to angle for any kind of shot. Giasa leaped up, picked up a pool stick from the wall mount. I didn't. I wasn't about to get into a game that wasn't my game with a sharpshooter, marksman's daughter, who has perfect vision and works all the angles with her knives and swords and bamboo sticks. I was ignoring her. Instead, I was checking out the small framed photos of her African-American family, mostly males on the wall at different ages in their lives, and the flicks alternated from military uniforms to graduation gowns and funny flat hats. Antasha's sons appeared to have been in some kind of military-type uniform from when they were very young boys. I took note of the fact that there was not one photo of Chiasa's father, the general. Even in her house in Tokyo, she had a wall of photos with no photos of her favorite person in the world. I wasn't in the mood to think deeply about him, even though it was obvious that their whole family had to have some reason that he was not to be photographed or displayed. He could be mentioned, acknowledged briefly, but not discussed. In the corner was an arcade machine, the same kind that would be in a real arcade. It had Space Invaders, Pac-Man, Asteroids, and Centipede, a four-in-one. You don't have to put quarters in to make it work, Chiasa said, squeezing herself in between me and the machine. I was just feeling the feelings. She pushed play for two players, and the Pac-Man theme music blasted on. As she began to wiggle the joystick around, I pressed up close on her from behind. That's cheating, she said, and turned around to face me. You're about to get eaten, I warned her, but she wouldn't turn back to her screen. I kissed her gently as we both heard the withering sound of her man getting gobbled in the game we laughed kiss me with your tongue she asked softly my blood boiling now I smiled this is what Chiasa likes most of all deep tonguing and sucking something that Aunt Tasha would never know neck and nipples she was getting dragged in deep simply from my touch you want me to stretch you out on your uncle's pool table? I asked her. She didn't answer, but her eyes revealed that she thought that was a sensual idea. I was imagining her already lying there, bare-assed with her pretty butt pressed on the plush green felt canvas. She began removing my suit jacket and laid it on the pool table, stuffing her thigh highs in the inside jacket pocket. Then she began unbuttoning my white dress shirt. I smiled. Luckily, you're not wearing a tie. I'd use it to tie you up and make you my hostage, she smiled, looking like she believed she could. I don't wear ties, I told her, but if I knew you were going to tie me up, I would have put one on. Come, 
Let me show you something. She looked, She linked two fingers into mine and led me out the room of games into the corridor and then into the family library. Standing in front of a wall of books, she said, lift me up. I want to sit on your shoulders. I squatted down so she could climb on me. Okay, stand up slowly, she said in her soft, excited voice. I leaped up fast as she shook and gripped me. You never follow instructions, she laughed, steadying her balance on my shoulders. Move closer, she requested. Closer to the bookshelf, I asked, then stepped in. She reached up and grabbed a big hardcover book off the shelf. I could have gotten that for you, I said. Instead, you're causing all this acrobatic. She leaned in and the wall of books opened up revealing a slim entrance she jumped down push the wall in she pointed i pushed she hugged me from behind we stepped into a dark corridor she said but i wasn't speaking She used her hand to feel around the wall. I thought she was searching for a light switch. But then I heard the sound of the bookshelf closing behind us. Now we were trapped in a narrow, darkened space. I could feel her, but I couldn't see her. Then I felt her energy walking away. I stepped forward to follow her energy, but stepped on something. I felt it out with my foot. It was fabric. I left it there and sped up my walk until I felt her presence, then reached out and grabbed her. Crazy girl, I kissed her. You're naked, I said. Well then, she said softly, stop teasing me. And... Her dirty talk, the curses she didn't used to know and wouldn't ever say she now used comfortably. We were tonguing. Her hands were moving all over my chest and arms, shirt, long gone. I took her hands and raised them over her head and her body was pressed against the wall. The sound of our breathing was echoing in the empty, narrow space. And even the sound of the moisture of our kiss was amplified. I let one hand down and placed my hand over the silk of her panty as I massaged that moist cloth over that warm, intimate space, I felt her fingers on me, her hand skillfully removing my belt and opening my pants. She wanted to feel skin, not the Armani fabric or the impression. Her body was lifted in the air, pressed against the wall, and I was moving. Her muscles were gripping me, so warm and moist, felt so good I lost my grip and her body was sliding down the wall and hit the floor with a thump I dropped down we were both breathing like crazy inhaling exhaling lying on the floor she began laughing did that hurt I asked her that felt so good she said then rolled around and climbed on top of me my head was so blown over this woman she was kissing me with those thick lips all over my face and her whole body was oven warm 
we were both completely naked in a dark space. I was loving the feeling, but asking myself, what are you doing in this woman's uncle's house? Yet I could not stop or shift back into discipline mode. You want some more? I asked her, but I already knew. She was sucking my chest and her hands were roaming again. She didn't answer anything, just breathing. I flipped her sideways, palmed her breasts. I lay her on her back and mounted her, pushing hard, and she made a sensuous sound. Chiasa, her aunt called out. Her voice was faint, though. It could hardly be heard. Don't stop, Chiasa whispered in my ear and squeezed my butt with both her hands. That ignited me. Our breathing was so loud it seemed it had to be heard on the other side of the wall. I was moving over her. She was moving beneath me until she cried out and I could hold it longer the second time around. So I sped up, got overwhelmed by the sensation until I exploded and collapsed over her body. I love you, she said softly. I pulled her hair, kissed her mouth and said, I love you too. It wasn't until minutes later, when we eased out of the fog of our funk, that we both began to think clearly. We were seated side by side with our backs against the wall, still couldn't see each other in the dark. Your aunt is looking for us. I know. This is a good hideout, but she's going to find the trail of your clothes from the striptease that you did to lure me in here, I said. Oh, stop. I didn't. She slapped my knee. What is this place, I asked her. It's the sealed servant's corridor, she said. I found it when I was ten. A nosy little ninja, I said. Yes, I guess so. Anyway, I found a book in the family library about these Harlem brownstone houses. And it turns out that the people who owned these homes in these this area all had servants. And they wanted their servants to be invisible. So, these houses were designed more than a century ago to have these interior corridors so servants could go up and down, in and out, serving the owners but not disturbing them. So, you can get to any part of this house through these corridors? I asked. Well, not the bathrooms or other places where it would be weird if someone could be there without you knowing it, or if someone could suddenly come walking out of the wall. Any room in a house where the people living there can be observed without them knowing is crazy, I said. Aunt Tasha would agree. That's why she had the servant's entrance sealed off, Chiasa said. But you still found it, I said. That's because she had it sealed off after I found it. So I knew all of the hiding spaces already. Get up, I told her. We gotta find our clothes and get out of here before she panics and starts calling around, alarming everyone. Let's make a plan, she said, standing. I'll go out first and find Aunt Tasha. I'll talk with her just like she wanted to do. I'll tell her that you are in my bedroom waiting patiently for me. You have a bedroom in this house? I asked her. Yes, Aunt Tasha made it for me a very long time ago. She doesn't allow anyone else to use it. I wanted to show you. Besides, Aunt Tasha did say it was okay for me to give you the tour, so I'll tell her that was what I was doing, she plotted. 
That was a good tour, I laughed. She must have gone to spite me in the way she does whenever I joke her. Our bodies bumped into one another. I grabbed her waist. We both started swelling again. I felt her brushing against my chest. One of us has to be the first to stop, I said, stroking the moist skin of her pretty face. So who's it going to be, she asked, playing with me. Now we were back to caressing, breathing hard, tonguing and bumping. The other way, she said, after we came down off the high of the third time. We came from the opposite direction, I reminded her. I know, she said, but if we go out through the family library, Aunt Tasha, who is probably right there on the main floor, will hear the bookshelf drag open. We have to go through the upstairs. She grabbed me by my private part and said, I'll take you there. I was thinking, this girl is crazy, but I love it. Of course, even though I couldn't see her, I was following her. She was holding my joint like a leash. Turn on the light, I told her. We're here. We were in her bedroom, where it was not nearly as dark as the servant's hidden path. Not yet, she said, pulling open a wooden chest. She rifled through some clothes, tossing everything up in the air. Each piece landed on the floor. There was a skylight window in the roof. The moon made her appear to be blue, and her hair looked electric. I found them, she said, waving around a pair of denim shorts. She put them on. She searched through the chest and found a particular tea she seemed to have been searching for. Okay, you stay here. I'll be right back, she said. But everything about her looked but everything about her look was a dead giveaway of what we had just done. She looked too sexy in her tiny tight shorts and tee. She wasn't wearing her bra. She had left it in the secret passageway somewhere in the dark on the floor, and even though there were no other males in this house at the moment aside from me, I couldn't let her walk away like that. I wanted to grab her and go in her again. Hold on, I said. She turned around and looked at me. Her skin was glowing from a layer of sweat. Her eyes were wide. Her look was wild like a wildcat right after a satisfying session of sexing, screeching and scratching in a secret alleyway. You smell like we've been... Mm, I said to her calmly. Her look turned suddenly shy. She blushed and then sniffed herself. I don't stink, she said softly, almost like a whisper. I smiled at her not stink. You smell like sex. I picked up some sweats she had tossed onto the floor and another tea. Go to the shower first. Even if it's only suds and a three-minute hot splash, that's cool, I added, handing her the clothes. Okay, she surrendered softly, but we are married. It's fine that we've been... right? She asked, then broke into a smile. It's definitely all right with me. And if you don't get moving, we'll be again. She paused. Her eyes were locked onto mine in a serious but seductive stare. Her love was a visible energy that surrounded her body and even framed her face. I could feel it. She fought herself, I could sense. Then she turned and left. As soon as my second wife was out of my atmosphere, I returned to my right mind, naked, in another man's house. I pushed right back through her hidden bedroom wall and into the dark corridor. 
moving quietly but swiftly down the interior steps and back to the place where I had left my clothes. With my shirt, boxers, and pants in one hand, I felt around the floor for my belt until I located it. Swiftly, I decided to get dressed in the corridor first. Dressed, I purposely took another route through the servant's path instead of returning to her bedroom where there was no sink or water to clean myself up, clean myself, clean myself up with. I would search for a path through the kitchen or a bedroom that had a bathroom in it. Either way, unfamiliar with the layout, I had to move slowly now through the darkness, keeping both hands on the walls as I walked to locate an opening or a button or a switch while listening carefully for voices, just in case. But I believed that Aunt Tasha and my wife would be in her bedroom. That was on the second floor. Therefore, that was exactly where I wasn't headed. I found a parallel crease in the wall. It wouldn't open or push in. I felt around for a button. There was none. I kept walking, still dragging my hands along the walls, trying to detect an opening. I found another one. Forty seconds later, it also didn't open. Strike two. I would give one more try before I returned through the route to her bedroom. Walking through the dark, the path dropped down. It was a set of stairs. I took that route, hoping to get lucky. On the wall at the bottom of the steps, I felt around. My fingers felt a metal grate. It was a vent, but not a door. I crouched down and looked through and saw the cranberry-colored wall. I knew then it was Aunt Tasha's office. When I pressed my face close to peer through the vent, I saw my wife, seated in the pretty $10,000 chair, still wearing her tight denim shorts. She had her hands over her face and fingers woven into her thick hair. She didn't get a chance to shower, I realized, and she looked frustrated. Then Aunt Tasha walked in. I could see flashes of the white dress she had on earlier. My second wife removed her hands from her face. I don't think of a baby as someone who prevents his mother from living and learning or even flying. You had four sons, Aunt Tasha, and look at all of those degrees you have on your wall. I found myself in the middle of an emotional conversation between them. I had my first son, your cousin Junior, when I was 29. I had already completed all of my degrees and my residency, her aunt explained. But what if you had met Uncle Clem when you were 16 and you were super sure that he was the man for you? Would you have told him no? Would you have asked him to wait 13 years until you have enough degrees to feel comfortable enough to love and marry him? She also pleaded. However, Aunt Tasha, the forensics fox, seemed to be certain that she was the one who would ask all of the questions. She didn't answer my wife's sincere inquiries. Instead, she said, and perhaps you have gone too far with this Muslim thing. I don't think you really understand the depth of it. You have some romantic view that only a young and naive girl could have. And the way you told that Solomon story was a little different than I remember it. I'll tell you what I do remember. Solomon had 40 or more wives. What will you do when your young husband brings back another woman and says she is wife number two? 
and three and four and so on. And then there was silence. I didn't move. I knew I shouldn't have come down here in the first place. Still, I wanted to hear for myself what my wife would say. I'm not greedy, Aunt Tasha. I'm so grateful to him. And he won't come home with wife number three. And I am already wife number two. (gasps) Aunt Tasha screamed. She had an outburst. Must run in the family, I thought to myself. And in the pitch of her scream, I stayed stuck there. began pushing the push buttons on her desk phone I thought it was strange that she would make a call in the middle of her passionate conversation with her niece brother I understand you know I do she said to the person on the other end of her call again it seemed like the middle of a conversation she had already been having with the caller not the beginning there were no greetings or intro which would be normal manners The person on the other end must have been over-talking. Dr. Tasha sat, listening, her face a little tight. Then she spoke. He has the chronological age of a young teen. He has the mental age of a 25-year-old. I interpreted the Wetchlers. He zipped through it like it wasn't even a challenge to him. He has a tremendous intellectual capacity. But the drawback is... He is difficult to pin to one cluster. He's got a precarious mixture of personality types, and I'm a profiler, so please believe me. This guy is incapable of functioning in a team. He's incredibly confident, but not histrionic. He's introspective and resolute in his ideas and inextricable from his beliefs. He has this compelling beauty and implacable charm that triples his influence and capability, yet he doesn't exploit it. The most dangerous element here is that he reviles authority, abhors instruction, advice, or orders. He disregards conventional thought and actions and has zero group identity. His mind manufactures alternative routes to every desirable destination. He will never yield to a chain of command or relent before the hierarchy. And, dear brother, your sweet daughter is absolutely in the palms of his hands. Then I knew she was speaking to the general, Chiasa's father, my father-in-law. The two of them together, I thought formed a treacherous mountain for me to climb. Aunt Tasha, please allow me to speak to Daddy, Giasa requested. It's so unfair for you to analyze my husband as though he's your patient. I turned and left, back down the path I used to get there in the first place. All cleaned up, I had used an upstairs bathroom comfortably since I knew they were engrossed in the basement. I had also collected my wife's panties, skirt, and blouse on my route back to her bedroom. 
feeling better, I walked down the proper house staircase and into their family library. My wife still had not come up the stairs from her aunt's office where both of our pairs of shoes were located and the shopping bag of gifts I remembered. In their family library, I was searching for a dictionary. I found one. A medical dictionary. I laid it on a long, wide table. There was a bin filled with scrap paper and a cup of blue big pens and another cup filled with number two pencils. I imagined all of her sons seated in here studying for their exams. Under the pressure of matching the degrees their parents had already earned. I had seen Clementine Xavier Moody's degrees mounted in his private office. He'd completed the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business undergraduate and master's degrees. He earned a PhD in business at Harvard. I thought of my father. He is also a man of degrees who graduated from the University of Khartoum in Sudan, from the Sorbonne University in Paris, France, and earned his PhD here in Harlem at Columbia University. I then thought of myself. Earning money setting businesses into motion would be my primary skill, focus, and accomplishment. Study would be my hobby instead of the other way around. Flipping pages, I looked up the definition of forensics. It said, the art of argumentation. I paused and smiled. It sounded about right, fit Aunt Tasha perfectly. She has a degree in arguing, and she would try to keep convincing my wife of her views no matter what because she was certified in arguments. I looked at the word psychiatry. It said the practice of diagnosing mental disorders. Maybe she specialized in arguing with crazy people. (laughs) I laughed, but when I looked up the two words together, forensic psychiatry, the profession became even more clear to me. It said the intersection of law, the courts, and mental illness. Unlike the regular Webster's Dictionary that I regularly, regularly used, The medical dictionary went into long descriptions and several paragraphs. I got drawn into reading about all the professional angles that a forensic psychiatrist could pursue. The most amazing one was that a forensic psychiatrist could be hired to reconstruct the mindset of someone who was already dead. I stopped there. I leaned back. My mind was questioning my soul about whether that was even possible. Could one human being, just because he or she was a psychiatrist, even construct the mindset of a living person? Wouldn't that involve the ability to read minds? Isn't that a space reserved only to Allah? Were educated humans just so arrogant that they felt they could confidently enter that space and accurately figure out the workings of another person's brain? And what about reconstructing the mind of someone whose soul had already returned to Allah? How smart would someone have to consider themselves to be to even agree to get paid to do that? I sat quietly. Some minutes later, 
I decided that it was not possible. It was guesswork being done by some people who studied so long and so much that no one could argue well enough with them to convince them that they were not capable of being right and exact or precise about these kinds of things. And if anyone tried to argue with them, they would have to have the same degrees to even be considered part of their discussion. And if they had earned the same degrees, they would just be another person agreeing with what the small group of quote-unquote mind scientists had already decided. Aunt Tasha was a foxy owl for sure, but I think her belief that she could read people would end up as her weakness. That bedroom she set up for Chiasa in her home was a good example of a misunderstanding. The darkened pink room was filled with furry stuffed animals and dolls. There was a dollhouse with furniture and the bed had a box spring below the mattress and sat up high in the wooden frame. It was covered with pink sheets and a white laced quilt. Nothing I saw in there was a match for Chiasa who sleeps on the floor on purpose and would have model airplanes and plastic soldiers and a spinning globe and a wall of knives before ever considering a stuffed animal. Chiasa, definitely not a girl who played with dolls, had been given a room that must have fit on Tasha's designs and hopes and style and misinterpretations of the daughter she never had. And I saw that she thought and felt she knew things about me that clearly she did not. I thought it was bold of her to think she could read me in less than four hours. As though she could summarize my life, thoughts, feelings, and even intentions la cadarala. She had referred to me as ominous. I looked it up in their standard dictionary. It said fateful either a good or evil omen. Quickly, I looked up prodigious, another word she had used on me. It said, having an extraordinary force. The third word that rolled off her tongue smoothly was pultritudinous. I fumbled with the spelling for a few seconds, then I located it. It said, physically beautiful. So, she believed that I am a physically beautiful, extraordinary force for either good or evil. More importantly, that I am fateful. I liked only that part. She needed to know that whatever the case, I am a part of her niece's fate. I found the copy of Catcher in the Rye in their library. I just flipped through it, deciding I would buy my own and read it, since every American high school student should do the same, according to her. Let's walk to the train station my second wife requested that night. I'd like to show you some things in Harlem. You are going to show me around Harlem? I smiled. I, of course, had been all through Harlem over my young years in this country. Sure, I agreed to let her guide me around because I wanted to be sure that she wasn't sad on the inside after her long talk with her aunt. I thought, even though she has that beautiful smile, maybe she was covering up another feeling. 
she chose to walk east, even though I knew we could catch the train on the west side where we had started out. I wanted to show you these two places, she said, pointing. There is the Schomburg Library. Have you been there? She asked. Never, I admitted. It's the library that has all of the books and films and research materials about the African and African-American experience in the world, and specifically America. I only know about this place because Aunt Tasha took me here when I was 10. It's not my favorite library, though. The best one is the main New York Public Library in Midtown Manhattan. So awesome. The feng shui is so much better. The feng shui, I repeated. The feeling, the atmosphere, she said. In Chinese, feng means wind, shui means water. And most Asians believe that the way a place is arranged adds to either a good healthy feeling or if it is arranged poorly or it is a cluttered place causes a bad feeling she explained i see was all i said remembering that my african wife is half asian her father and his sister aunt tasha and uncle clementine and their family are not half asian i reminded myself and across the street is harlem hospital Uncle Clem used to work there as an administrator, really high up, she said. And what happened, I asked. Well, I was young when he left there, but I guess he wanted to do something where he owned his own business and would be in complete control of his capabilities. Uncle Clem is secretive. Aunt Tasha says that he's a genius and that even NASA recruited him as a consultant on a top secret project. When he completed it, NASA named it after him. NASA, I repeated, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, she explained. It's the government. We can take this subway right here, I told her. It was right in front of the Schomburg. Can we walk over some more blocks, she asked. Sure, I said. We began walking down from 135th Street and 7th Avenue towards 125th Street. She stopped in front of another book place on 130th. This is Liberation Books, she announced. There is a really nice lady who owns this bookstore. Her name is Una Mozak. She is friends with Aunt Tasha. Auntie brought me here once. And this lady, Una, her name sounds like Uma, right? She paused and laughed. Well, anyway, this lady, when I met her for the first time, just kept talking about Africa and all of the problems in each of the countries. That's when I first had my idea that I would fight against the bad guys. I decided to become a mercenary and go fighting good causes everywhere in the world, solving problems wherever good people needed help. And now your family is disappointed because I married you. And that will no, no longer happen? I asked, but didn't really need an answer. She stopped, turned, and looked at me. I saw you, she said. You saw me? I asked. Through the vent. You know I have really good vision, she said casually, not like she was complimenting herself, but simply stating the truth. And I hope that you know it doesn't matter what anyone says when it comes to you and me and our faith and our marriage. Aunt Tasha thought I was debating with her and fighting to keep you, but the truth is I was reasoning with her and fighting to keep her. 
staying with you is permanent and no human can alter that. Thank you.